Welcome to another edition of BartCast, a podcast series curated by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. Learn more at bcm-net.org. Welcome to BartCast number 26. It is November 27th. 2018, and we are here in the world headquarters of uh, Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. Uh, this is Chad Myers, and I am with my partner, Elaine Enns. And we are here to uh, have a conversation with Joshua Grace. Uh, and here's, here's the deal. A lot of our work, uh, those of you who are familiar with our um, Bartimaeus Institute online courses know that one of our themes that we often touch on in our work is what my teacher Jim McLennan called biography as theology. That is seeing the way in which people embody gospel faith in their lives and in their journeys. <clears throat> so we love to interview people about their journeys. And today we have the great uh, and fun privilege of sitting with the one and only Joshua Grace. Say hello, Josh. Hello, Josh. <laughs> Uh, what a wag. You walked right into it, my man. Joshua helped us uh, cut our first um, and possibly only hit single today. Uh, and we've been having a lot of fun with him. And so we want to talk with Josh. Josh is known throughout our extended community, known and loved around North America and beyond um, as a pastor, as a friend, as a uh, serious and sincere disciple of the way. And we're just delighted that he uh, wanted to sit down with us for a few minutes here uh, and do a podcast. So, Elaine, I'm going to invite you to uh, kick it off. Awesome. Well, the first question that came for us was wanting to ask you about how your growing up experience shaped you. So what was it like to grow up Polish in a predominantly Polish neighborhood? So what, you know, in terms of ethnicity and location, how did that shape you? It was great. Some of my earliest memories are on the east side of Buffalo, mm. where I had one older brother at the time and my parents, we lived next door to my grandparents oh, nice. in a split home with mm. my uncle and aunt and their kids. They eventually had four. So it was extended family Ooh. on the block. That was the neighborhood where my great grandparents had migrated to the same parish. Wow. The central terminal is like a eight to 10 story train. Uh, it used to be for commuter trains. It was like a, a train terminal. That was our front yard and it had been vacant since the early seventies. Mm. So then the, the years after our Polish neighborhood, um, you know, it was never all Polish, right. but um, my youngest, when I was there, a lot of people were moving out and crack was moving in. Mm. So we were part of the group that, that moved out. But um, yeah, those earliest memories were about community, extended, you know, kinship yeah. and just having a healthy sense of, um, you know, being Polish is just kind of what we, what we, what we are, you know, the food. I, I I lost some of the language, but mm. my grandmother, my nanny, was a hairdresser and had a little oh. studio in her 
offer kitchens. So the Panis would come over and talk Polish to us and, you know, watch us when we were, when we were outside, we knew that um, we were never alone. And also there were always, always eyes on us. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it would be somebody like, Oh, I know your grandmother. What are you, you know, what are you mm-hmm. doing out there? Mm-hmm. I remember your dad when he was just a little kid. So that was very, a lot of security and intergenerational life. How many generations in the neighborhood? Uh, I would have been the fourth. Wow. And what's, what's the migration story there? Poland around the earliest ones were 1896 till 1915, basically. So some of them technically came from Germany, some Mm -hmm. of them technically Russia. I think one of them was even Prussia, but it was a lot of, you know, wartime trying to get out. Mm -hmm. And a lot of folks came to the, through New York to either, you know, Buffalo, Chicago is the where there's more, even mm-hmm. more Polish mm-hmm. than Buffalo. Mm-hmm. And did you say, did you learn, did you grow up, as you were growing up, did you learn some of the Polish language or when you were little, like you were fluent in it? Or? I was never fluent in it or any, anywhere close to that. But yeah, little little phrases or mm-hmm. greetings and going to the Broadway market, you know, to, to get the fresh food and stuff. You had to be able to have a little, yeah. couple little phrases. But I think it kind of died out when my dad and his brothers when they finished eighth grade, um, most of that, their early instruction was Polish, but then they went to public high schools and they were kind of encouraged to blend in to, you know, uh, they didn't have the language to say, hey, if you can partake of white skin privilege, now's your chance. Right, right. But go go out there and be normal. <laughs> be normal, fit in, yeah, blend in. Melt, melt into the melting pot of whiteness. Mm. And would... <clears throat> Most everyone have been Catholic, and was was the church very central to the community? Absolutely, yeah. Being Polish and being Catholic is kind of the same thing back then. And Saint Stanislaus was the first Polish Catholic parish in the U.S. and wow. named after the martyr who who and the um, the saint back in Poland. So um, it was a center for community, not just you know baptisms and uh, christenings, all that stuff, but also bingo. You're and right. yeah, the social hall was active. It's always packed with events. Mm-hmm. I've actually booked an event or two there myself as an adult going back. Really? Yeah, it's all family stuff, you know, but yeah, yeah. it's pretty cool. W- would you <clears throat> describe yourself and or your family as devout or what church-wise, what of that do you think stuck with you? Well, for me, I found out that I was baptized Catholic in secret. I've, I learned, my mother learned at my wedding, and then I learned when I was probably 35, that when my parents were sick, they had a hepatitis that from a contaminated water fountain. We lived with our grandparents, you know, my brother and I, for six months. And then just in case my parents died, you know, my nanny was making sure I baptized us. Care of that. Mm. But my, my, but, and so she baptized you, but she never told your never parents. Never told, never told. I, I think my dad would have got mad. Um, cause he left the Catholic faith in high school and then my parents got married pretty young. Uh, they were 20. And then when they were like 23, 24, they had a, a religious experience at Halloween with some Pentecostals. So they, they became some whole, hardcore holy rollers. <laughs> and, um, there's a lot of Pente- Pentecostalism. There's kind of like an anti-Catholic mm, thing yeah, and, right. um, back in the eighties, especially. Yeah. So for me growing up was way more Pentecostal. So I love the ecstatic worship. I still kind of like that people can get pumped up yeah. together through yeah. some music or some <laughs> holy trance music, you know, some ceremonial 
um, mm. ceremonial goodness, repetition, and the, the power of the Holy Spirit, you know, being tangible, being accessible. I like that too. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of, I know your last name that you were born with because your brother Johnny yeah. came to the Institute. Say it. Sheshniak. Sheshniak. Yeah, we said Sesniak. That's kind of our Americanized version. Yeah. 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 Sheshniak. There's a city in mm. northern Poland, Sheshin, <laughs> uh, where that's, that some people, people say people that's where they, well, it's possible. Also, um, it, it means in Polish something like a, a fortunate person or a, mm. a lucky fellow. Okay, so we're going to jump around a little bit, but where I go right away is that when you and Martha got married, you made a big decision to choose a different name. And we want to hear, we want to hear about your faith journey and how, you know, growing up in the Catholic Church, the highlights, the inspiration, the calls. But I also want to hear that bit. How did you, your name change? I'd love to hear that story. Yeah, Martha and I, we we also got together young. And when we, I was 23 when we got married. Mm -hmm. So thinking, and for Martha, she had grown up Catholic, but she's Italian and German. But uh, growing up Catholic, she sort of fell away for a few years. Had a faith resurgency when she had gotten pregnant with Helena mm -hmm. and um, we got married when Helena was a year and a half and we were trying to think of ways that her name, Martha's birth name was Fasnacht, oh, which okay. is, you know, donut, you know, is the main, the main thing. That's the, the, German the, for, uh, the, okay. was it fast night, first night, fat Tuesday is Fasnacht day. Ah, and Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania, oh, okay. Pennsylvania Dutch, yes. is it, it's a big holiday. So Helena was born, Helena Grace Fasnacht. Mm -hmm. So we, when we were getting married, we we're trying to find a way both to have all three of us have the same name. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then um, she had a pretty radical conversion to the, to the way of Jesus, finding community and finding some um, spiritual resources that she didn't even know she was hungry for. So we were really into this grace thing of just this uh, undeserved love of yeah. God and how, how that can form you. So we, we went with Grace. And there was a lot of paperwork. And uh, back then it was all, you know, kind of hard to navigate. It took us like six months to, you know, file with all these, the legal newspaper and see if the FBI would let us do it. But they did. And what was your family's reaction? They, they were supportive. There's actually a, my grandfather had seven brothers mm. and four of them changed their last mm. name. Oh, wow. So even, yeah, Sesniak okay. kind of, some people say that's not even our ancestor's real name, mm. but that when he came over, either they gave it to him or okay. he lied because he was, mm. the story is that he was wanted by the Germans as a horse thief. But <laughs> that's, that's my cousin. Um, that's, I think that's more his story. <laughs> awesome. Can you <clears throat> fill in a little bit more about your own, journey to faith you've talked a little bit about martha and her uh, conversion at helena's birth um how about for you how did you uh what were the major stages of your journey to faith would you say yeah second grade was my high high point of spiritual <laughs> vitality <laughs> and where the especially the pentecostal i've really just clicked and i think by the time i was 13 14 i kind of flunked out mm -hmm. and uh, 
I don't know. It seemed like the Sunday thing was getting more contrived and it was, mm. I, I sensed that people were trying to appear holy to mm. like follow the rules or not get in trouble or something. And, and to me, I, um, in my teenage angst, I wanted people who are going to be honest about all their problems all the time, mm. which now that, you know, I'm older, I'm like, actually don't be honest. As a teen, that was important to me. So I kind of mm. went looking in other places for, so you left the Pentecostal church. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And then right before I moved to Philadelphia for college, mm-hmm. I had a this spiritual encounter at a rather large rally at a hockey stadium that my mom asked me to go with and hear this Colombian dude preach in Spanish. But I, wow. I yeah, I had this wild just sense of, um, yeah, to go get prayed for. So on um, one hand, so this is a little bit about what what it was like sometimes down there in those days we'll just say people praying in tongues and doing all this stuff shaking you in the head people are falling over being slain Mm -hmm. in the spirit Mm -hmm. left and right Mm -hmm. and it's fun people love it uh but for me i i didn't like seeing people trying to fit in i thought they were trying to fit in by falling over or the i didn't like how these uh Spiritual men were like pushing people over. So I prayed. I was like, God, I believe in the power of this stuff. But if you want me to fall over, then use use spiritual power. I'm not falling over because this dude is like you know, rattling my, my skull, you know. <laughs> and they prayed and they prayed real hard and shook me real hard and everything. And I and I I wanted to I wanted to feel this this power, you know, of, of the Holy Spirit in that kind of tangible way. And I did it and they moved along. And I looked around, and there's about ten thousand bodies. <laughs> yeah, was, there's at least a couple hundred on the floor of this hockey arena. I was the lone, the lone one standing. So I was like, "Well, either they're going to tell me, you know, I got to go to the next line where I got a demon, so I got to like, do a lot more prayer." But they they let me go. Yeah. So then I moved to Philly as a thinking I was moving to a party school to really, you know, get out of the the small town that we had moved to and back into the city, and I ended up kind of being the really sincerely looking for Jesus and looking for community and looking for a sense of like, who can we do this with? And I found a, I was fortunate to find a church in the first couple months. And that was Circle of Hope. I've been part of that for Circle of Hope for 20 plus years. And those folks were, um, yeah, they had the the sincerity thing I was looking for. Then they were talking about like racial reconciliation and um, justice, even in like, how you use your money and, and that kind of blew me away. I never really thought of those things before international peace work. They're Anabaptists. Mm-hmm. I had only met, you know, one family of Mennonites before in my life. So that was a lot of it was pretty new. So I've been rooted in that, you know, place and people and tradition. So I didn't realize you'd made it to circle of hope when you were in college. So what about your call to ministry? Cause you've just completed 15 years yeah. as pastor of Circle of Hope in Philly. Um, so how'd you get there? What was your call to ministry? And then what were some of the favorite things uh, that were a part or that happened under your leadership? Being part of the church for maybe six years, I was leading some music and the, there, it's a cell church. So the circles of 10, mm-hmm. I led cells. And we had this idea that with like when a healthy cell is a certain size, it multiplies. So that could work for congregations too. Mm. So rather than doing elaborate pastoral searches or trying to hire 
professional clergy, we wanted to try raising somebody up. Nice. So we formed this apprentice pastor group that met for close to a year, discerning each other's gifts and mm. uh, thinking through like, hey, what, you know, what ideas do you actually have? So by the end of that, um, I had found a, a friend found a building in the in Fishtown, which is a neighborhood in Philadelphia, and um, we wanted to start this MCC thrift store to benefit the Mennonite Central Committee. And um, I talked to about 30 of my friends and just said, like, hey, I'm, I know I'm 24, but if I were the pastor of this new outfit, would you would you come and do this with me? Would you plant this church? And they were like, yeah, that'd be cool. Mm. So I went back to that group with, uh, yeah, here's the good building that you know we can get for $50,000, which is, you know, pretty cheap even back then. Mm -hmm. And we could do the thrift store there, the congregation. But I was like, oh, as far as calling, I don't know. Hmm. You know, that kind of feels like uh, I want, again, I'm, you know, the Pentecostal thing maybe, but I want this clear confirmation. I want this thunderous mm. message to be like a holy and anointed person or something to, to do something that grandiose. But instead, the group kind of rolled their eyes and like, oh, you don't have a calling, but like you have all the everything, you know. <laughs> okay. So they, uh, the eye roll wasn't a mean one, but it was a, it's like, of course, you know, it was very confirming. Yeah. Yeah. So mm -hmm. then got to do that, learning about renovating buildings and project management and then small <laughs> business startup. And then wow. uh, at that point, I'd only ever given two sermons. <laughs> so most of my pastoral training was not you know, sermons. And I, and I, that was really formative for me because I realized the, the, the emphasis, the overemphasis on sermons, sometimes that pastors yeah. especially put, there's so much more to the work, to providing, um, this, I don't know. I think it's almost like this, this positive, uh, parental energy where people can feel safe and secure, know that they're loved, know that they belong, know that they um, have people in their corner. So that was really fun. And then, and then we got to do so many cool projects that were just place-based, very specific. So some of my favorites were like around urban farming because um, Philadelphia doesn't have um, ready access in most neighborhoods to, to healthy um to, yeah, healthy food, especially fresh fruits and vegetables. So taking, you know, going into spaces that are lots that are full of trash and, and full of, um, you know, blighted areas and, and having them be a place of regenerative life, you know, felt like practicing resurrection. So one of those gardens is still going uh, 15 years later, even though it's, you know, 10 continues to be threatened as the land becomes more valuable. Um, wow experimenting with, uh, I mean, the thrift store, and, and that's Martha, my partner, is really the the brains behind that mm -hmm. operation. And now there's three MCC thrift stores. Awesome. And the, the amount of friends that we've made through, say, somebody who had to do community service that, you know, had to do, I mean, one my one friend had to do, I think, like 2,000 hours of volunteer work. And by the end, she was indispensable, so we hired her. <laughs> and then you, the longer you work there, the more you get the more you get paid. So she's like the highest paid person there and only works like eight hours a week. It's, yeah. And she's my neighbor. She lives two blocks down and her whole family and her grandkids and her several of her sons and <clears throat> being able to <clears throat> relationally root in has been mm -hmm. just such a joy to, mm -hmm. to that neighborhood, to that yeah. particular part of Philadelphia. Yeah. And, and just one more little memory is when we baptize, baptism is super important 
to the Anabaptist folks, right? Adult baptism, mm-hmm. the believer's baptism. In the last few years, we started uh, doing them at least once a year in the Delaware River, uh, which nice. is really, it's, you know, it's the, the main, we're in the Delaware River watershed. It's about a, less than a mile from my house. It's from where we worship and it's uh, polluted. You know, the signs yeah. where you, you can't eat fish from it. Um, right. When it when you get a heavy rain, the way our stormwater works right now is the the heavy rains um, when the yeah the, our stormwater system can't help hold it. So then the the rainwater and the sewage go right to the river. Right. So it's exactly. it's not a um, a cent- the, the health of the river has not been central to the plan of Philadelphia and right. Jersey and all this. So when folks were even willing to get into the water. That was a huge statement of even um, love of place and humility to place as a teacher. But it was also um, for some folks, they would say, "I don't want to go in the Delaware River. That's dirty." Gross, and, yeah. Yeah, and I and I think really, if we can't, if the river is too dirty to be baptized in, then what is our discipleship? What is that the question that it raises for us? Mm-hmm. And taking care of the river seriously, even if it's only a means so that we could do baptisms there. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a Christian mm-hmm. responsibility. Mm-hmm. We're about halfway through our interview, friends, and <clears throat> I want to let you know that this uh, podcast is also a fundraiser for Joshua Grace, uh, not for BCM. Uh, Joshua is visiting. Uh, he's about halfway through uh, the first part of his sabbatical. He's been traveling around um, U.S. and Mexico. Uh, He's here on the West Coast and will be soon leaving to head back on the northern route uh, back home to Philadelphia. And he's uh, in a period of discernment, having um, left Circle of Hope and looking now to shape what will be next in his vocation. At the end of this podcast, we're going to give you an opportunity to uh, donate to that what he calls his pivot sabbatical. So please uh, uh, stay on to the end and listen to how you can support this brother in his good work. Um, Josh, say a little bit about um, how your vocation has been shaped by your family and by your neighborhood, both of which you're very close to. Yeah. My family is, you know, so Martha and then our two daughters are both high schoolers now, which is super cool. Mm. And then my mother lives less than two blocks away. My two younger brothers live in Philadelphia. Martha is uh, from 20 minutes away in South Jersey. Her parents live there still, several of her siblings. We have 16 nieces and nephews around. So the family and the place is uh, very much... uh, opportunities for multi-generational connection and and enjoying each other and you know everyone loves each other and gets along and we find social ways to do it and as far as place the i mean the watershed is a is a glorious one it's it's spectacular it's the most spectacular place on earth for about two weeks in the (laughs) autumn when the leaves change all throughout pennsylvania and new jersey it's just magnificent and to Mm -hmm fall in love with um, the, the, the place was kind of easy in terms of recreation and that, but um, to live in a, in, a, in a city, especially in a post-industrial neighborhood, to me, like it's been important to care for the creation that I'm on. Mm-hmm. So we have a little bit of a yard 
so I tend to plants there. You know, we grow food and herbs mm. and, um, you know, flowers and stuff for pollinators. And I try to touch it every day. Mm-hmm. We don't have wide open um, vistas very close by, but we have shared park systems. So I try to go to a shared park mm. every day to just get in there and, and share in the green <laughs> and then also leave town every, every month to just go somewhere and, and be away from light pollution and the, the noise. You know, we have the sound of the L that we can hear constantly by our mm-hmm. house because we're right by it. And, um, yeah, those rhythms, learning how to, um, I mean, to how to eat, especially like what, what are the, the native species and, and what have people been eating there for a long time, has, has, you know, is one kind of way, but then also the, yeah, the rhythms of the year, we get the, we get the seasons in full force. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. kind of enjoying these different moments are those, those meta, yeah, those meta metaphors are always for contemplation and for even leading different actions along with like what plants are blooming or, you know, what, what moon it is, that kind of stuff. I remember being at your house. Well, you fed us out of your garden. We had cucumbers, we had tomatoes, we had all sorts of yumminess when we were there last time. It was really nice. I'm really glad you got to be there. Well, and Joshua is a heck of a cook too. So you can get to his house and have a few meals pretty awesome. Yeah, we'd love to. We love, we love, <laughs> I love eating. Yeah. Chad mentioned that we just cut our first single with the support of Joshua. And Joshua is an amazing musician that uh, leads the house band um, at the Bartimaeus Kinsler Institute every year and just curates such an incredible music space, inviting folks in in uh, knowing how to help people shine um, and supporting um, the expression of music, which is just such a gift that we are so grateful for. And we had that experience today and it was really, really fun. But we would love to hear um, about, about how music has been a part of your life. You know, in the early years, maybe we can hear a few stories about Salters, how that all started, and then how it continues to shape uh, what you do, what you're called to do, the passion, mm-hmm. obviously. Well, first off, is. people should look at the Bartimaeus Facebook page <laughs> to see this, the uh, the debut single of Three Blind Barts. <laughs> and yeah, music is so, so integral to to me in sense of practice or even the, um, it evokes certain, certain feelings very easily, you know, and to whether it's certain intervals, just bring me to tears, certain little passages in, in multiple genres, you know, give me goosebumps. And mm. um, that mm-hmm. the way that, um, yeah, harmonies work together just profoundly inspires me. Mm-hmm. Has it always been like that since you were a kid? No, I kind of listened to, I think, some questionable music when I was a kid. I liked it, but I didn't really know that I could do it. Yeah. Because right. in sixth grade was my first instrument. I started playing mm. saxophone. Oh, mm-hmm. nice. And now when I finally got to Barry Sax, that's when I knew I was really onto something. The Barry Sax is just, I still think it's, I love the instrument. I can't. Um, if anybody has one laying around and they want to send it to me, it's great. But they're, they're, <laughs> super, they're cost prohibitive mm. to play. But that got me, and then I got into drums, and um, 
playing drums and, and the rhythm element, I think is still pretty, pretty much the way my brain works. So, um, um, in large ensemble. So we'll be the early days of Salters. I kind of think the, you know, 96 is when Scotty kind of got it going, um, in a very sort of like college dorm basement mm. kind of vibe with people who were sort of outsider musicians, you know, it was all everybody's first band and then they didn't really know that much, but they were profoundly inspired mm. and had these ideas that were just so, so great about trying to sort of go the way of the, the, the old temple musicians. Um, and then have this, this justice, this crying out for justice mm, and, yeah. um, and, and people responded to it in surprising ways, even though I think it was pretty sloppy and we had, you know, 10 people on stage and dancers and people banging on drums and several people who just, you know, sang and yelled around and stuff. <laughs> um, and that got a little more refined over, over the years, thankfully. <laughs> um, and I got to do a number of things in the, in the project and. Um, I, I think rather than being, I think electric guitar is, is probably like my, um, primary instrument. Mm. Um, but, uh, if I had to make money, I, I would be a drummer, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, with Salters is a great opportunity to be connective tissue. So mm. even towards the, the end of our, of our run, you know, in 2011, my brother, Johnny and I were the multi-instrumentalists who every song had to like switch into a different instrument. So mm-hmm. like, you know, on a guitar, one song, on a drum, one song, on a different drum, go play bass. And, and that kind of, um, that mania is very, very exciting, very stimulating, mm-hmm. trying to, to think, you know, compositionally, even how to like know the song in different kinds of ways. Um, yeah. And, and lately it's been, um, we at Circle of Hope, we did, we do write a lot of original, you know, worship music, ceremonial music, Mm -hmm. and um, are specifically influenced by a lot of um, different traditions, especially uh, folks that we have connections to in the the African diaspora or indigenous folks and both ceremonial music and, um, yeah, folk folk music from around Mm -hmm. the world. So we did a couple albums there who are, and I, and I served more as a producer role to trying to get other people to, to be able to hone their gifts as songwriters. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, I've never been much of a lyricist or a even songwriter, but I'm a pretty good collaborator and that I like being Mm -hmm. that soft tissue that, yeah, that helps other people be able to come into their fullness and be able to let them, let them, uh, shine a bit but but also like let their vision come into a a better reality because it got refined Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so like at the institute it's a it's so much fun and then we even try to do songs that are easy to sing along with the first time you hear them yeah right i mean that's a particular almost a genre of Mm -hmm. itself Mm -hmm. but bringing in kind of like the inclusive hey you want to be part of the band let's do it yeah uh that's that's pretty thrilling and we've been very fortunate too that the so many of the folks who gathered aren't trying to just center their own ego or trying to mm. to get their record contract that day, you know. But they're but they're there. To, they're, we're all participants. We're all part of this community, and all of this music is for the community. It's for it's yeah. for this our our formation. And yet, you attract some really fine musicians. Yeah. And so, um, Elaine and I both remember as a high point of the last institute oh. <clears throat> yeah. when. Um, Rose Berger suggested a, 
a fairly obscure old gospel tune and uh, just kind of shoved, shoved it at you. And in very short order, you all had the most soulful performance and participative performance. Yeah. Um, say, say a little bit about that um, song and about uh, Sonny Mandrake and the Black Mustard Seed Bomb Squad. Yeah. Mm. Rose really, uh, yeah. if you ever want to talk about music with just a very intelligent listener and curator, Rose Berger is a encyclopedia. Uh, and she found this, the, yeah, this version of the old ship of Zion the, by the Mighty Wonders who were like a, a labor, a day laborer band in Maryland. Mm. When they recorded that song, I think it was Oh, you know, I don't remember the, the year. I don't want to. I don't want to even say because yeah. uh, I'll say it wrong. But when they recorded it, they were the only. I mean, this song, the old ship design, has been recorded. I think over two thousand times you know, that most people know of, and they were the only version to have the verse. There's nothing but love in God's water, mm. and that just yeah. you know accentuated the what we were doing in the institute, what we were doing that liturgical day, mm-hmm. and you know, it was, amazing. It was I, amazing. I So she sent it to me ahead of time. I had heard it and practiced it. I felt pretty good about it um, and didn't have time to teach it to the band, really. So I played it off <laughs> my phone. Um, we got through about 30 seconds of it. And I was like, you kind of got the gist. And they're looking at me like, what? And then we Let's went, go. Yeah, I know. Showtime. And then we went and did it. And these folks, yeah, they were just so good that they... They they picked up what where it was. They didn't you know try to do too much, and then two minutes later, it's like they've been singing this song their whole lives. Soul, yeah, soul. Yeah, it was it was profound. Really powerful. Mm. Yeah. What are you excited about musically right now? For me, it's been DJing, and and that and that has been even cool traveling. Like when I was in Mexico, I had a had a gig at a club in Caretaro which was really fun. But the last couple of years, my love of hip hop has kind of been stirred again. And I was in these situations. So the Carnival Day Resistance, we have this bike pounder sound system. So various sort of neighborhood things, people who know us hit us up and they say, hey, especially if they're like an eco kind of group, an urban farm or some simple way or something like that. So, you know, we set it and I know how to, I'm one of the few people that know how to set it up. So I set it up and then there was going to be a DJ that came and he was late. So they asked me to just play a playlist or something. So putting together a little playlist on my phone is fine, but Hmm. I I was longing for something more. And that happened at two or three block parties in North Philly or in Kensington where, you know, I even have okay taste, but, and then I saw some of these DJs with their consoles working, what they're doing. And it made it really, uh, it looks kind of, it looks super fun, but it also like, didn't look that hard. It didn't look like playing the, fiddle or something you know when you <laughs> kind of see someone and you're like oh yeah i probably can't do that <laughs> but yeah so i got into that so um doing yeah doing hip-hop and uh now i, I think when i was in mexico i got a really good education on the, some yeah. new you know trapeton and reggaeton and mm-hmm. that kind of stuff mm-hmm. and um yeah working on mixtapes the next one i'm working on all you know, it centers female MCs who are mostly kind of woke female MCs, yeah. wow. and um, I'm, I'm learning some new tricks and stuff. So yeah, so that's cool. That's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And then dancing—the dancing is what it's about. 
really and and to be i mean that's what i love about djing is to be be at a at a mm. gathering where people really want to dance and you can feel and respond to them that to the energy and knowing when to like kind of go faster go slower have breaks or all that stuff and that's <clears throat> i'm on i'm definitely on a steep learning curve but it's it's so much fun it's so fun so you and Snowles maybe have to DJ the dance party at the Institute, yeah, man. Yeah, that'd be fun. <laughs> that would be fun. Another thing to add to the many things you do at the Institute. Uh -huh. Okay, so you were just saying you were in Mexico. Now you're with us. You've traveled, traveled across, across North America, or U.S. You are dipping up to my hometown, yes. Saskatoon. You are on this big journey. It's your pivot. What? What is this all? What is this all about? What's it mean for you? Yeah, the, the vocational pivot is kind of like how I how do I finish pastoring well, and even be part of the community that I pastored, but also refine some of these these things that that have been kind of burning inside me mm. that at, at times kind of stretch the role of pastor maybe even a little bit too too far. Mm. So especially around. Um, like, I, I think pastors should be involved in the justice movements pretty heavily, mm -hmm. especially around this um, environmental catastrophe that we're living in and figuring out how to help people and communities um, decenter white supremacy. But I think that um, as I'm about to turn 40 and it's seven years since my last sabbatical, my oldest kid's about to turn 18, I feel it's coming of age in a new way. Mm. So I'm thinking about what's, what is... God even directing me towards for in my forties. So I have some instincts about that, mm -hmm. but, but I have some, some, some deeper questions that I'm taking a couple months to answer. And that is a incredible gift that I even have some time to be able to ask long questions and wait and get a lot of input and not have to just kind of functionally have to get a different job or have mm -hmm. to already have had an idea while I was in my former role of what I was going to do next. So to me, it feels like a huge gift to have this liminal space that I can play around and enter into and not know where it's going to end. So yeah, by um, February, I hope to release the, the first season of a podcast is, that I'm trying to do as well. And after that, you know, I have a few opportunities already about um, either with some kind of trainings, partnering with some friends, um, doing some, some work around, you know, dismantling and decentering white supremacy. Mm. Um, uh, probably going to do some stuff with some young Anabaptist leaders, but um, I'm pretty open to, to what that could be. I mean, we're be based in Philadelphia, but, you know, I love traveling and mm -hmm. I have a, um, if I have any gifts, it's my largest gift is that I have an amazing friend network mm -hmm. that, that yeah. extends, I mean, throughout, I mean, this trip, a two month trip, you know, I'm, um, Sometimes mm -hmm. I slept outside. There's a few nights that I, I slept in an Airbnb, Airbnb or something, but but I've been staying with friends. Yeah. And a lot of those people have stayed at my house too. Mm -hmm. So that's even it's pretty awesome. Awesome. Yeah, to come back and be like, hey, remember when you said if, yeah, if I ever, you know, <laughs> if I ever come out your way, here I am. Here, and, here you know. I am. Oh, you're awesome. you're uh, <clears throat> somewhere in the middle of this sabbatical. Um, so far, so good. Is it is it um, finding it renewing? energizing inspiring so far it's super stimulating and fun and exciting and it's kind of uh 
the most fun I can remember having. Mm. And some yes. of that also is that my stress level has dropped. Yeah. From and anxiety is just way, way down. So like nice. yeah, worrying about things like can I drive eight hours without falling asleep, that kind of stuff. Some days are the things that that you know are my tangible worries. Of mm. course it's always, you know, my kids' health or something. I, I just can can stress about that, but yeah, and, and the people I'm visiting, a lot of them are, are folks that I've collaborated with in, mm. in the past mm -hmm. on art projects, on music projects, on justice projects, or different kinds of movement spaces. So it's a lot of it is even like, hey, we're, remember, you know, when we, it's really fun to work together, I used to not have that much time. Yeah. Yeah. Now I got tons of time. What are you thinking? What are you doing? What can we collaborate in? Mm. And eventually, I think some of those opportunities are going to help shape um answers to questions like for me even like what really gives me life mm -hmm. what kind of work makes me alive on the inside to where i'm able to do um live out of my best self well yeah. my my full self and mm -hmm. and i know what it's like to do that and be able to like even say when i was 24 and we're you know renovating buildings starting businesses planning churches and for me that's just really exciting and not not tiring for a while mm -hmm. so so sort of trying to rediscover a little bit of like mm. what what really gets all my you know gets me into sixth gear because i want to i want to produce you know i want to um mm. i want to do stuff yeah. you know as much as i love just screwing off and having fun i mean you know, i'm looking for some <laughs> some deep work here some meaningful work mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. um so who i'm going to work with particularly or what i'm going to do i feel very open about that mm. um Probably will have, you know, for me, I always have the faith component, but working in um, interface spaces or, you know, non-religious spaces, that's totally, I'm totally open to that too. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, so how to, how to get there, I'm not totally sure. Right. But, but right now I don't have to know. Right. And that's no. also the joy of it and the fun mm -hmm. of it is just uh, it's part, of, part of the nature of sabbatical. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, Josh. You do have an incredible network of, of friends and you're a great networker and you're a great friend and your friends love you as we do. How can listeners um, help support this sabbatical? You've fashioned this as a little bit of a community supported sabbatical as someone who's given your life to building the movement for the last 15 years. Um, how can people give back to you to support this vocational pivot project? On my blog, I started a new blog not too long ago, joshuagrace.wordpress.com. And there, there's all the, there's some writing and stuff and links to some of the different social media stuff I've been doing, but also a little tab about donate. And that's um, the good people at Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries have, <laughs> have sponsored this as, an, as a nonprofit so that folks can get tax deductible benefit from their donations. But as I'm trying to do this first trip to is you know, pilgrimage one, I'm trying to do four here in the next four months. One of them is extended time in the wilderness, which I love, you know, solo hiking. And I'm trying to just, mm. some of that's in bits, but I'm going to do a chunk too. Um, one of them is a uh, extended time with mentors. Mm. So that's when I'll be coming back here even for more time in February and hanging out with the Woodleys, particularly up in Oregon. And then the final one I'm hoping to um, go back to my own route. So go to Poland. I've never been to Poland. Yeah. Wow. And um, to even not not knowing who or where exactly to go, 
but I know that I want to put my feet in the Baltic yeah. Sea. Yeah. And I want to put my hands to the heavens and see if anything happens. Mm-hmm. Well, then, so so yeah, my my blog you can see the, those links for how to you know do electronically or checks if anybody mm-hmm. wants to to join me on this journey and yeah. and help me figure it out and help shape it. Well, Nani, who uh, secretly baptized you, <laughs> I think would be very happy for mm. you to get to Poland. So, friends, let's help um, Josh on his uh, vocational pivot. Uh, so it's joshuagrace.wordpress.com. You got it. Uh, you can also uh, just go to the uh, BCM um, homepage and go to the donate button. Uh, that's www.bcm-net.org. And press the donate button and just put in the, the memo line. Uh, this is for Josh Grace's um, vocational pivot. Uh, <clears throat> let's Let's raise some money for this brother so he can uh, – keep on his way as he finds his way into the new season of his life. Josh, thanks for um, visiting us. Thanks Mm -hmm. for your friendship over the years. And congratulations on completing well a very fine piece of ministry work. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we we pray for great grace and renewal um, and clarity as it emerges on this uh, sabbatical journey of yours. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, and we love you and oh, are so grateful for your friendship. Thank you. Amen. All right, friends, support the sabbatical. JoshuaGrace.wordpress.com, bcm-net.org. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to the Bartcast, produced by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. To find our resources or to donate to support the BartCast, please go to chedmyers.org. Thank you for listening. Oh.